We're in the middle of 2 Samuel, and if you don't remember from last week, if you weren't here uh, last week, David received tremendous grace in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The story is that David wanted to build a house for God, and God responded to that by giving David a dozen promises of what he was going to do for David instead. And this morning, we're going to find out how David responded to that grace as God begins fulfilling some of those promises that he gave David. We're going to cover three chapters today because they are all very connected in the story. I'm not going to read every verse. Um, We're not going to have time to look at every detail but the big picture is, is really worth it in this case. This is the only time in the book, I promise, that I'm going to cover three chapters at once. Okay, uh, And it's not going to be so bad as it sounds. Um, but uh, we're going to do that today. So chapter 8, uh, first of all, begins with a summary of David's military victories. And this is not all happening after 2 Samuel 7. It's just a kind of a writer's summary of the the military victories of David's reign. And I'm going to skip to the end of this section just to give you the idea of what's happening. So chapter 8, verse 13, this is God's word. It says, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now the Edomites were a people group that lived south of Israel. And by this point in the chapter, the writer has told us that David has conquered enemies on all four sides. North, south, east, and west. He breaks down the battles by those different regions to show us that God is expanding David's kingdom in all directions. It's also helpful to know that God is using David as an agent of judgment. That word in verse 13, striking down in Hebrew, is used over and over, and it's the same word as when God struck down Uzzah for touching the ark. So what God is now doing, according to the writer, is he's using David to bring judgment, to bring holy wrath upon the other nations surrounding Israel. But that's not the point of the chapter. The point of the chapter is that God is continuing to bless David. His kingdom is growing. Okay, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel... And David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is a very important verse. And we'll pause here and talk about this. Because what the writer is telling us is that David is a good king. This is David at his best. This is perhaps Israel at its best. And it says that David administered justice and equity to all his people. This is, I think, the highest praise that the Bible could possibly give to a king. 
And those two words, justice and equity, they're, they're used dozens of times in the Old Testament together, and then they're used hundreds of times separately. So very important words. And there's been, um, you need to know that there's been a lot of debate around those two words recently in the church and how they relate to the modern concept of what we would call social justice. But the debate is mostly about the application of those words. It's not about their meaning. Okay, The meaning is clear, at least it, it is clear to me, and so I want to Go over that briefly, okay? The first word, mishpat, in Hebrew, or justice, means treating people fairly. And in this context, it means that David was a good king because he punished wrongdoing and he protected the rights of everyone in the society equally. Notice the phrase at the end of the verse, to all his people. So, rich and poor, whatever their circumstances the people of Israel, collectively, all of them, could trust David to do the right thing in as much as he had the power to do so. So that's what that word means. Okay. The second word, zadakah, which is translated here as equity by the ESV, is normally translated just as righteousness. That's what the word is. But in this context, applied to David's kingship, along with the other word, it means that David was a good king because everyone who was living under his care was experiencing the blessing of righteousness or the peace of righteousness. Because that concept of righteousness is closely tied in the Old Testament to the concept of peace or shalom in the Old Testament. So righteous living before God results in peace and prosperity for the people of God. So what the writer is telling us is that the people living under David's rule were experiencing the flourishing of a good king and a just society, probably the best that Israel ever had or ever would experience, arguably. So the controversy comes today over how Christians should apply this. And all I'm going to say... Uh, without getting too much into it. All I'm going to say is that we, as Christians today, are not living in a theocracy. None of us has had in our lives the kind of kingdom influence that David had as the king of Israel. No one in the world today lives in a society that is perfectly just because of sin, which is operating both publicly and privately in the hearts of men and women around the world. But, as Christians, we do live under the rule of a Jewish king. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the king, commands his people to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. And so as representatives of our King Jesus, we, his people, called by his name, are being commanded to administer justice and righteousness to people in our spheres of influence, to our brothers and sisters in Christ first, then to our neighbors, 
our co-workers, and literally to anyone who God or whom God puts in our path. As Christians serving the king, we are called to live in such a way that the people around us experience the justice and the righteousness of God's kingdom. And frankly, I don't care much about what the kingdoms of this world get right or wrong. And you might criticize me for not caring enough or caring too much. I don't know. But I don't really care what the world does with this thing, with these things. It's totally fine, I think, to debate the role of the Christian in government and the application of biblical principles within our spheres of influence. But, and the reason I'm here, the reason I'm sticking on this verse for so long, because I want to say this. Our hope is not in human institutions on the left or the right. Our hope is in a king and in his kingdom, which he clearly says is not of this world. Jesus is the greater David. And at his best, David was only a snapshot, a picture of the justice and righteousness that Jesus is offering to his people and to this world. Now, he is an important snapshot because he reveals something about the heart of God. And that's where we're going to go next. And this is important. It's vital for us to understand as the church. But I want to make sure that we're not taking that and making our primary application of it something that the world needs to get right when only Jesus is actually going to do it. But let's look ahead. The next two chapters, the writer is going to give us two examples of David at his best. And I want us to pay close attention because it's, it's beautiful, honestly. So chapter 9, verse 1. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David is the kind of king who goes looking for someone to bless. And not just anyone, specifically David is looking for someone to bless from Saul's family. And you need to know that this is 15 to 20 years after the covenant that David made with Jonathan. Okay, So this is a generation has passed and David is thinking about a promise that he made years earlier. Do you remember the boy named Mephibosheth that we read about a few weeks ago. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And when Saul died, the boy's nurse dropped him while they were fleeing the city because everyone assumed that Saul's household was going to be murdered. And so she drops the young boy and the text tells us that both of his legs were injured so that he was not able to walk ever again. Well, chapter 9 tells us that David tracks down Mephibosheth. He brings him to the palace. And then shows him this inexplicable kindness. And the, the, kind of the, the dramatic irony is Mephibosheth probably thinks he's being brought there to be killed. 
Okay, so you need to kind of know that in the back of your head. But now let's read the story. And this is the longest passage we'll read this morning. Verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. And you shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So what I want you to notice first is that David goes far beyond the terms of his covenant with Jonathan. All David had to do to honor that covenant was to spare the boy's life. And instead, David offers this young man in his early 20s protection, provision, and even a position in his own household. He says, Don't be afraid. You're under my protection. No one's going to hurt you. And not only that, you're going to eat at my table. And not only that, you're going to live like my son. Now, all sorts of gospel alarm bells ought to be going off right now, right? Because what Jesus did for us was not just save us from death. He brought us into his family. He gives us a seat at the table, right? But I want you to notice the writer intentionally stresses Mephibosheth's physical condition and his heredity as the grandson of Saul in order to reinforce the idea that David is showing this man amazing grace. And that David personally is getting nothing out of this relationship. He's getting nothing from it. He's giving, and he's getting nothing in return. And this is perhaps the best picture of King David that we have in the Bible. 
And I want to suggest to you that this kind of compassion, this kindness, only makes sense in light of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is showing grace in measure and in response to the grace that he was shown, that he received from God. And I think that's the lesson here. And it fits with the message that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples. Look at these two verses just as an example. Luke 12, Matthew 10. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Freely you have received, freely give. You see the principle here? David seems to understand that he, that he has no business eating at the king's table. And I think that's the connection. Remember, David's house was provided by God. David did not earn it. Okay, The, the protection that he received from God, David had not earned. This position as king, David had not earned. He had been given it by God and he didn't make sense. There's no reason why David should have been chosen. And because David knew that, he was humbled by it. And then he extends the grace of God beyond himself. And I think, brothers and sisters, I think that's the correct way for us to think about the Christian life. Our primary motivation to show compassion and generosity towards others, to invite them to our tables, to serve them. It is the grace of God towards us. And what I want to suggest to you is that every other motivation is rooted in pride or else it flows from some sense of guilt. For instance, helping someone that we know of who's in poverty. That will only be an opportunity for us to look good or feel good about ourselves if it's not motivated by grace. It will only be some sort of virtue signaling. Look at me, I'm doing this. Or... I feel so bad, I need to do this, right? But it it changes everything if we start to believe that we don't actually deserve anything that we currently have. Nothing that I have. I am nothing outside of the grace of God. It's not just I have nothing. I am nothing apart from Christ. And if that is true... I'm convinced that the people of God who believe that will have the greatest impact in this world. And that's the direct line that we see what's happening in David's life right now. He's motivated by God's grace. And he is showing God's grace. But what happens... What happens when someone rejects the grace of God? Or, to put it another way, rejects the grace of the king? 
Because that's the story that comes next. And the reason I wanted to read these three stories together, David doing, you know, conquering, and then David showing grace, and in chapter 10 is because they're connected. So chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan the son of Nahash as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But, but, verse 3, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. So, do you see what's happening? David is trying to show kindness towards the Ammonites. The Ammonites were the cousins of the Israelites, the children of Lot. And These are not David's people. They were Gentiles. And yet, God has preserved for us a record of David trying to show kindness to their neighbors, people whom David had no real obligation to show them kindness. And as we saw in this story, what they did was they rejected that kindness. They rejected that that, that show of, 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 um, of what David calls loyalty. And they provoked a war. Now to us, this just sounds like a bad prank, right? Let's shave off their beards and cut off their clothes and send them back half naked. And, you know, that just sounds kind of silly to us. But do you understand that to an ancient Israelite man, this was deeply shameful to be sent home like this? It was essentially an act of war. And that's exactly what follows in the chapter. David goes to war with the Ammonites, and of course he wins. But there's an important thread that's tying these three chapters together. Okay, So David shows us what a gracious king looks like in chapter 9. But then he shows us what happens when the grace of the king is rejected. And this is a great place to bring in, and most commentaries do, Psalm Psalm 2, which is a psalm of David. He says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
So what I want to suggest to you is that when we read these three chapters together, they're actually presenting us with a challenge. There's grace in the middle, right? Grace was shown to David. He's willing to show grace in response to that grace. But the question is, for us, will we receive the grace of God and then respond to it with gratitude towards others? Or will we reject the grace of God and suffer His wrath? Now listen, in the church, we speak about the cross as the message of grace, right? This is what Jesus did for us. This is what He offers us in the gospel. He's offering us forgiveness that our sins would be erased. He's offering us reconciliation with God and with each other. He's offering us adoption. He says, I'll bring you into my family as my son or daughter. I'll give you an inheritance. I will give you a hope and a future. Just like Mephibosheth, God is offering us a place at the table of the king, a place that we don't deserve. But do you understand that that message can be and often is rejected? It's not automatic. And very often as a preacher, I take for granted that everybody wants to hear the good news and believes it. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, for this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Okay, so you see, the same message is life to some and death to others. You see that? The same message of the gospel, the word of the cross, is to some a fragrance of death and to others a fragrance of life. Life to some, death to others. But as you think about what it means... For someone to reject God's grace. I want you to remember who you're rejecting. Not just what, but who. And this is the challenge, okay? Now, you know, you know how it's more difficult, it's much more difficult to watch someone suffer when you have a relationship with them, right? I mean, it's one thing to read about something in the news and associate, okay, there's something bad happening in somebody else's life. But when you actually have a relationship with somebody, and I mentioned this earlier, but the war in Ukraine hit me hard this week because I spent an entire summer there. And I have friends who are still living in that country whom I communicate with. This war on the other side of the world feels different than all the other wars on the other side of the world in my lifetime, at least for me, because I know people who right now can stand outside their apartment and hear gunshots today. And that's hitting me differently. 
And in a similar way, I think that, and I want to I suggest that so many of us who grew up in the South, we're hearing the message of the cross all the time, but it's only going to be made personal for you by the Spirit. You can hear it, and you can hear it, and you can hear it like news on the news. And it's not personal because you don't really understand what it's, what it's saying to you. What God is saying to you. It, it might as well be on the other side of the world for you. It's just news, but it doesn't matter for you. And it's only going to be made personal for you by God's Holy Spirit. And perhaps that's part of what Paul means when he talks about entering into Christ's suffering. The Ammonites sent David's men back naked and ashamed. They scorned the king by humiliating his men. And they were his men, right? These were David's men. David responded swiftly by bringing the wrath of God down on the heads of the men who humiliated his men. It was personal for him. But do you understand that Jesus, our King, was scorned by being humiliated in your place? In my place, naked and ashamed on a cross, and God's wrath fell on His own Son? His Son. Instead of on me. There's one last detail that I don't want you to miss. Even David at his best still deserved the cross. And this was it. This is David at his best. It gets worse from here. It goes downhill super fast next week. This is David at his best and he still deserved the cross. He never earned the grace of God. Not even the best king of Israel earned the grace of God. Just think about that for a second. Not even the greatest apostle had earned the grace of God. Not even the best king. And if that's true, then Jesus really is our only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, as we consider the message of the cross, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in the room, and even for myself, there are some days where that message just does not hit me like it should because I'm not thinking about it personally. I'm not taking it to heart. It's just a headline. It's just information. And so, Father, I pray by Your Spirit You would make it personal for us this morning. That we would set aside all the cares of this world and focus for a moment on the cross and put ourselves in that equation and, and recognize that none of us in this room, not the best of us, 
none of us deserve anything less than the cross. The wrath of God for sin. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would comfort us by Your Spirit and draw us into this story and help us to understand that Your suffering for us is real. And that You're calling us to a place at Your table, but it is possible for us to reject it in sin. For You to leave us without mercy, without hope. And I pray that that would not be the case, that Your Spirit would wake us up Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.